You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. Today on the show, we are joined by Professor William Von Hippel. Professor Von Hippel is a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland who has a keen research interest into evolutionary and social psychology. This passion for understanding social dynamics led to Bill writing The Social Leap, a groundbreaking hypothesis of human development that dates back to how our ancestors made it from the savannah, escaping the African desert millions of years ago has forever altered the way that the human mind works, and today we discuss some of those changes. In this mind-blowing episode, we discuss the new evolutionary science of who we are, where we come from, and what makes us happy. We look at things such as why we are wired to collaborate and help others, why tribalism is at the heart of our species, the journey of evolution and other things like why it's so painful to not get many Instagram likes, why rejection hurts so bad, why it's so hard to be present in the moment, why it's important for men to take risks, as well as what key things women look for in a sexual partner. So before we jump right in, don't forget guys that we have a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter which you will love. There's a link below on this episode and should you get value out of our work, then a 5 star iTunes review would make us really, really happy. So guys, I hope you enjoy this episode with one of my favourite guests that we've had on this show to date. Professor William Von Hippel. It is such a pleasure having you here, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Amazing. So we were just touching on a little bit of um, evolutionary psychology just before we started rolling. And I think it's really important um, you know, to sort of figure out where we come from and look at these sort of unconscious biases that we may have. And I was thinking about this Carl Jung quote um, when we were talking, and I think it's something like, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. <laughs> and I, I love That's that quote clever. so much. Yeah. And, and I wonder, um, why do you think that evolutionary psychology isn't studied more? Well, I think a lot of people worry about what they perceive as the political implications of what we're doing. And, and most social scientists tend to be lefties. They're these squishy types who they want to make the world a better place. And they're concerned about some of the negative aspects of social interaction, hierarchies, inequality, um, prejudice and stereotyping, stuff like that. 
And so the ideal in the sort of person's mind who does this kind of work is, boy, if we're all born a blank slate, then there need not be any prejudice, there need not be any stereotyping, there need not be any hierarchy. Anybody who wants to can be anything they want to be. It's almost this kind of Marxist dream, right? And so the evolutionary psychology seems to go against that because it says, well, no, we've got these evolved proclivities. Men have these kinds of tendencies and women often share them, but women are often different in these kinds of ways. And as soon as you start to have that, different sounds like it might be unequal. And given that we come from a world where men were massively advantaged or women's opportunities were massively limited, people are super leery about anything that looks like it's, it's reifying inequality. It's saying that no different groups of people have their places in these, their slots in the world, which of course evolutionary death psychology doesn't say. And then the second worry I think they have is even if they don't mind that, even if they're not fussed about that, if they think, well, gee, I'd love for prejudice and stereotyping to go away, but we've evolved to try to, to do that under certain circumstances, maybe I'll never be able to make it go away. And they just don't like the bad news. You know, maybe it, there's always going to be conflict between men and women. There's always going to be conflict between different groups, etc. And of course, it's a little bit burying your head in the sand. If there's a problem, you're way off, better off knowing about it than not. But nonetheless, I do think that's why a lot of my colleagues turn away from it. Fascinating. So when we're looking into um, the social and evolutionary psychology, I always think that it's more description rather than prescription. And for me, I'd rather know these things, you know, like, like from a conversation with David, I had like one thing which stuck out to me was um, women tend to be less likely to want to date a man of a similar education level. Um, so they basically want to date a man of similar education level or higher, you know, mm-hmm. rather than vice versa. So I'd rather know these things, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I suppose my question to you would be before we delve into your work, are there any perhaps underlying principles of evolutionary psychology or perhaps, um, you know, any sort of uh, background information you would like us to know before we delve into the topic? No, I guess the only thing I would say is that it's important to remember that we didn't evolve our entire suite of traits that we have and on a particular day out on the savannah, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the traits that we have, we share with, virtually every mammal on the planet. Other traits that we have are are utterly unique to humans. And so along the way, there's gonna be lots of traits that we share with lots of different animals that we would have evolved at very different times. The capacity for pair bonding is very early mammalian um, uh, strategy, particularly for uh, bonding um, between mother and infant. But you know, lots of birds engage in adult pair bonding in order to help raise difficult babies. And that's a common mammalian strategy as well. you can see bits and bobs of things where we, it's, it's evolutionarily old, and you can see other times when evolution has arrived at the same solution multiple times by very different routes. And so I think that people, when they hear about evolution and psychology, they think, oh, that means we've got this Pleistocene mind in a, you know, in a modern brain or modern skull, but it, it doesn't. It means Some aspects of our mind are way before the Pleistocene, and some of them are much more recent. And what's interesting is trying to figure that all out. And of course, like any other evolutionary um, discipline, it's difficult because we can't go back and query the details we'd like to know. We have to rely on the little bits and bobs that have survived, um, the biology, the anthropology, the archaeology, etc. 
Yeah. So I figured a great point to dive into this where I'd like to start is with tribalism. So you just mentioned the um, Savannah. So one of the things in which I found particularly thought-provoking from your book was that we've evolved to cooperate really well in, uh, you know, to really well to cooperate. But that doesn't necessarily mean tribes from outside our our own. So, for example, this is, I found this particularly interesting, say, from just a moral perspective that if we've got a tribe within the savannah, that will help us defend, well, really help us kill other tribes more easily mm-hmm. or to defend from it. So I wonder, um, does this play, I suppose, a role in why we see so much rampant tribalism today in things like politics? You know, we've got the left, we've got the right. Do you think that that plays a key role in it? Yeah, it's, it's this very strongly inherited aspect of our psychology that we, we have an automatic bias that favors members of our own group. Now, we don't have an automatic disfavoring of members of other groups. We don't automatically dislike them. Us, we automatically like them. We're ambivalent about. And the reason we're ambivalent about them is many times in our evolutionary history, them, some other group, was a plus. They, we got together in friendly circumstances. Maybe we traded goods. Maybe some members of our group joined theirs and vice versa to avoid inbreeding. There's lots of benefits and advantages when you run into a different group that, that lives elsewhere from you. But lots of other times, things didn't go so well. And we encountered them and maybe it created physical conflict or maybe they ended up making us sick with pathogens that we weren't previously exposed to and therefore we don't have a good immune system for. And so... We have this inherited ambivalence about other groups. We're willing to see them as positives, but we're very willing to see them as negatives. And the moment that we come into conflict with other groups, that that old tribalistic psychology comes into place. And a big part of the reason for that is by the time we got to Homo erectus, or certainly Homo sapiens, we were so good with division of labor, we were so good with planning, that there really was no other species on the planet that was a threat to us when we're with our group. You know, a lone person walking on the savannah could easily be lion food. But a a bunch of people walking across the savannah, the lions would be wise to run away. And so there's only one other animal on the planet that could do harm to a group of humans. And that was another group of humans. And so what that meant was that often when we came into conflict with other groups, they were really our biggest threat. And, And as a consequence, we've evolved to cooperate very tightly within our own groups. We share a morality with our own group. It's immoral to do mean things to our own group but it's not immoral to do mean things to other groups. Most hunter-gatherer um, uh, tribes around the world have totally different prescriptions for how you're supposed to behave with your members of other group versus somebody from a different background. They're, it's, you know, they're, not, they're not fully human in almost all psychological systems. And so you know, thankfully we've come a long way since then. We, we live in these cosmopolitan cities where we encounter people every day from different groups and there's no consequences of that. But of course, underlying there, we're prepared to be wary of them and to, when things go pear-shaped, to become very negative about them. Yeah, so Homo erectus, what were the size of the tribes in which they were uh, growing up in? Now, that's a great question. We don't have a clear answer to that. We know that they traveled in groups. We can often see that at kill sites. We can see that at campsites. The size of those groups is not so obvious. And so the... Um, Probably just like Homo sapiens, they would have come together at points to, have, to be in relatively large groups. And just like Homo sapiens, they'd have split apart. If you look at, at modern hunter-gatherers today, uh, especially immediate return hunter-gatherers, those who eat today what they kill today, 
they typically, they can get into very large groups, even a hundred or more, but they very rarely do. Because the problem is when the group gets that large, they start to bicker a lot. It's hard to have enough food for everybody because you got to go in different directions to find something to, to kill and bring home to eat. And so they tend to split apart. A group of 15 to 30 is a whole lot more common than a group of 100 or more. And, and that's probably the, was exactly the same with Homo erectus. We, we see lots of kills where we know there were quite a few around, but, but we can't really tell exactly how many right. at any okay. one time. Okay. Because um, I viewed this figure of about 150 banded around. I'm not sure if that's just a gold standard. Or... No, that 150 is a really interesting number because it's kind of the upper limit of what our minds are capable of managing. If you look at people's sort of Christmas card list or their, the number of friends that they have um, that they regularly interact with and know a lot about, the human brain seems to run into a, a ceiling at about 150. Hmm. But actually, hunter-gatherer groups are rarely that large at any one time that's sort of the upper ceiling it's not a ceiling that's reached very often right i see um i think one of the things in which your book really points out is that we've evolved in such a way in which collaborate in which collaboration get my words out is highly favored and i suppose this this makes sense right because you know we know whether something is evolutionary favored by how we feel by how we feel i see an attractive woman you know, I feel good. If I work out, I feel good. I get run as high. If I help someone, I feel good. You know, if I eat um, a McDonald's, I, f- I feel good, you know, because right. I suppose back then that would tell me if a, f- if a food was ripe or not. Um, yeah. So I, I want to talk about collaboration. And it's interesting how this has evolved because just the other day, I was hearing Simon Sinek talk about studies in which it shows that in collaboration, innovation and productivity goes up. Um, so I wonder, um, just in terms of collaboration, why has evolution made collaborate in such a uh, productive and a rewarding experience? Yeah, that's a great question. And look, there's lots of argument. I'll give you my perspective on the answer to that question. But of course, other scholars might emphasize other things. And what I would say is that if you, if you rewind the tape about six million years to when and ancestral chimps and, ancestor, and our ancestors were the same species. The data don't look like they're basically chimp-like and collaboration is relatively rare. Chimps do not like to work together. If given their preference, they'll try to go do things alone as far as hunting and things like that are concerned where they have a goal. Sometimes they'll hunt as a group, uh, for example, particularly in hunting monkeys because they can kind of surround them and do a little bit better, but they don't work together very well. And one of the problems with chimp those, those group hunts, is that they're not good about rewarding those who helped them versus those who didn't. The, the sharing out is much more to do with your, where you are in the hierarchy than it has to do with, did you help me um, achieve my goal? Mm-hmm. And even in humans as young as four years old, they quickly understand, nope, you were not on my team. You did not help me achieve this goal. You do not get any of the spoils of, of the hunt, you know, whatever it is the humans are doing. So it is definitely the case that our ancestors were not good shit, not good cooperators. Um, and in fact, one of the, my favorite pieces of evidence for that is if you look at the eyes of a chimpanzee versus the eyes of a humans of a human. Chimpanzees are very clever animals, and they can tell from what from the angle that you're sitting at what you could see from your vantage point compared to what they could see from their own vantage point. Nonetheless, they disguise what they're looking at because the sclera, the, the part of the eye that's around the um, cornea, is all brown. And so when a chimp looks to the left or right, it's very difficult for another chimp to see where they're looking unless they move their head. 
we've evolved away from that, these whites glare to our eyes, which visibly advertise the direction of our gaze. And what that tells you is, it must have benefited me for my group to know where I'm looking, because now I look over when I see a predator or a prey item that I want to get. And what that tells you is, if I, if I want to advertise that to everybody else, it's because I know that on average, they're going to help me achieve my goal. If it's a prey item, they're going to help me capture it. If it's a predator, they're going to help me contend with it. So somewhere along the way, we have this massive change. And I think that that happened at around Australopithecines. Once they're upright walking, once they could defend themselves in the savanna, um, I think by throwing stones, that, that required a coordinated activity. And so it required a big psychological shift for them to start to protect themselves as a group and to start to cooperate and work together. And since that shift, we also see all sorts of signs that we're completely changing our psychology and our mental capabilities. And so in my mind, that's the probable point at which it all changed and took off. And what do we know about the language capabilities of, say, Homo erectus? We don't know if it was spoken or if it was gestural. The probability is that it was gestural. When we can do a lot better genetics on some really old material, we'll be able to look at some key genes that are associated with our voice box and our, and our volitional control over our voice box. A chimpanzee can't do that. The first uh, chimp that was ever raised in a home, their effort was to try to raise it to make sounds for what it wanted, simple sounds, they thought, and it could never volitionally control its voice box. They can make a lot of different sounds but they don't think, oh, I want to make a sound. It's like an automatic response to seeing a certain predator or prey or something like that, or, or feeling good. You know, the, the closest would be hiccups and sneezes, things like that, that, that we do, yeah. we do reliably to certain things, but that we can't control. Or you might have sharp, you know, if you scream because you were scared, you didn't say, oh, gee, I'm scared. I think I'll scream so people know. Out it comes, right? <laughs> and that's kind of how chimpanzee control of the voice box works. They could sign language very well though. And so people, once they realized, oh, this was a failed experiment, it's not gonna learn to, to make speech sounds to communicate, they shifted over to different kinds of sign systems. So somewhere along the way, we gained that capacity to do that. And it may prove to be the case that it was with Homo erectus, probably not. It's probably more recent than that. Um, it probably is somewhere around Homo sapiens, but I'm just completely guessing, I don't, I don't know when that volitional shift would have taken place. But we do still talk with our hands, right? We do all sorts of stuff without meaning to. And I suspect that's because that system is still pretty much hardwired into us. That was the way we communicated entirely before. All sorts of gestures, you know, you go there, I'll go there, we'll capture our prey in the middle. And now we're, we still tend to do that. Yeah, I love that. And, and in terms of the um, hand gestures, which you point out, I just had Vanessa Van Edwards on the show. And uh, she's a social psychologist. And one of the things in which she was telling me was that she did a study on TED Talks. And what she found was that the TED Talks with the most views, uh, there's a common theme that they have more hand gestures. So I, I, I would love to talk about this one point in the book you talk about, you know, you've got these 10 points for the good life type thing, if you will, which I'm sure is a publisher's job. <laughs> but I'd love to know, you know, why is storytelling so deeply rooted into us? Yeah, that's a great question as well. And I suspect the storytelling began as completely gestural. You know, if you think about a pantomime or charades or something, you can tell a lot with your hands. You know, there we were walking along, on jumped the, you know, the bear. What was I going to do? 
thankfully for us, we've shifted so that we can now use this enormously complex language that we have, and we can gather people around the fire and tell them that. And once our communicative abilities got that good, we suddenly gained a capacity that no other animal has. And that is all, all other animals have to learn by direct experience. Either it happens to them and they contend with it, or they watch it happen to a member of their group and they watch how their member of the group contends with it. But I can go out on, the, you know, on a hunt, I can come home at the end of the day and you can say, hey, Bill, how was your day? And I would go, you would not believe what happened to me today. And then I tell you a story about how literally three lions and two snakes all attacked me at the same time. And you're like, oh my God, how come you're still alive, Bill? And I was like, well, here's what I did. And you can learn this incredibly valuable lesson that you can store away. Boy, if I ever get attacked by lions and snakes at the same time, that's what I'm going to do. That worked like a charm. Whereas no other animal has that capacity. They just can't. There's no way that your indirect experiences, they can't communicate well enough. So the experiences that you had are locked in your skull unless I happen to see them. And there's lots of cases where you can see animals very frustrated because there's one animal that's desperately trying to communicate something to the other and he's like, I got no idea what you're on about. But we've gained this extraordinary capacity that we can learn through indirect experience. And then because of our oral storytelling traditions, we can learn through indirect experience times a thousand. You know, some ancestor of ours has these great wisdom that just gets passed down through the ages. And of course, in the last 5,000 years, we've learned to write and then the whole world suddenly is accessible to you. And the internet, of course, allows you to listen to people you've never met, et cetera. So, but we've, because of all that, it's hardwired into us that we want to tell stories because it's so valuable for other people to learn from our experiences and therefore value us. And we want to hear stories. It's so valuable for us to learn about other people's experience. Here, Bill comes home. He's been bit all over, but he's still alive. I can learn how to survive that without having to get bit at all, right? And so that's immensely valuable. And, and any, any one of our ancestors didn't enjoy storytelling. We said, ah, they're telling stories. I'm going to bed. That guy became lion food far before everybody else did. And hence, you know, that, that kind of tendency to not enjoy them was weeded out of our gene pool. Only people who like to listen to stories and often who like to tell stories have a best chance of making it by virtue of the value to, that they would have had to our group. And so it's become just fundamental to us. We, we don't think about storytelling very much, but reality is that's what movies are. That's what books are. That's what podcasts are. That's what most of our communications are. And when you look at hunter-gatherers and the stories that they tell, during the day, they chit-chat, they talk about, they gossip, they talk about who's doing what. But at night, when they light the fires, they sit around and start to tell stories. And I don't think that's changed at all. We come home from the day of the office, we turn on the telly or we get out a book or we watch a movie. It's the same thing. We want to hear these stories. We want to be part of it. Yeah, I think I think I remember, and I would have to go back and listen to it, but I think Daniel Coyle told me on the show that it was a drug more powerful than heroin. <laughs> the story down. <laughs> Danny's absolutely right. I've known him since we were both little kids and he's a fantastic storyteller and look at what what, that's made a life for him, right? You know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing to think, Oh, what do I want to be when I grow up? A storyteller. But that's what so many jobs really are. People on the news, authors, you know, pundits, podcasters, all these, what we're involved in is stories. And, and the, we've come to value stories a great deal. We're really good at pulling out the nuggets that matter. We can get completely caught up in these fictional worlds where, oh my God, what's going to happen to Harry Potter in the next <laughs> book? I can't wait till it gets published and find out. Even though we know that Harry Potter doesn't exist and, and, and Rowling can decide whatever she wants to, she can kill him off at any point. But, but we get caught up in a story and he becomes to have real meaning and we get identified with him. And, 
And the reason we're so good at transporting ourselves into stories is that that allows you to really learn the lessons that the story has to tell. If you're kind of listening to it and it's neither here nor there and you don't really enjoy it, well, you're not going to walk away with those lessons. And those lessons are really cheap. You don't have to get zapped by Voldemort. Now you know how to deal with him without ever experiencing that. Now, that's, of course, pure fiction. But a blend of fiction and a blend of reality is probably how stories have been told since the very beginning. That's phenomenal. I love that evolutionary adaption of it. And when I'm thinking about that, I, it makes me think just in terms of um, the size of our brains, because I wonder um, this, you know, you, you make this case in the book that this, you know, the, the brain in our head is taking up a lot of metabolic calories, right? It was, I think you said it was something like 20% of our, of our energy or our calories or something like yeah, that. Right. So I wonder, um, you know, how has this led to humans being dominant? Because I suppose something like the elephant would have a much bigger brain than us. So is there a correlation between the size of our brain and dominance? Or is it, you know, a not? That's a, a great question. The, here's the way I think about it. Imagine that they took you or me and they said, okay, mate, bad luck you. I'm dropping you in the middle of the jungle, buck naked and alone. <laughs> You or I, we're going to end up food for something. You know, we're yeah. not making it out on our own. That's it. I'm going to cry and then I'm going to get eaten when the sun <laughs> goes down. That's it. But if they, if they tell us, here, we're going to drop you and 30 of your friends, alone, not alone anymore, but naked in the woods. You've got nothing. I'm not even worried anymore. None of us has ever hunted an animal life. We're going to figure it out. And so a, one human being on their own has an amazing brain, but most of the capacity that comes with that amazing brain is lost because most of what makes that brain work so well is how that brain connects to lots of other brains. Mm -hmm. And we've evolved this really unique proclivity that my colleague Thomas Sudendorf talks about in his wonderful book, The Gap, which is that we have a desire, this fundamental desire to connect our minds to each other and, and to relate the contents of our mind to them and, and to learn about the contents of their mind. No other animal does that unless it has a particular goal. I want you to know there's a monkey in that tree so you and I can go hunt it together. But we tell each other, so how was your day? Oh, I had a great day. You know, we just do all this information sharing because if we're all on the same page, then we're going to be much more effective as a group. So this natural proclivity that we have to information share allows us to solve problems that we could never solve on our own and allows us to survive in ways that we could never survive on our own. So elephants are extraordinary animals. They, um, like they've done these amazing experiments. If you think about the experiment itself, it's kind of amusing, but, but what it tells us is remarkable. So they'll take these, they'll, they'll, Elephants will sometimes travel in groups that are miles apart. And what they'll do is they'll go to the back of the group and they'll, you know, here's Bob, the big elephant in the back, and they'll wait till Bob takes a piss. And they'll literally get a bucket and quickly scoop it out of the dirt. They'll zing along in their car. They'll go way up to the front of the group and they'll drop Bob's pee in front of the rest of the group. Now, if, Bob, if they picked up Bob's pee and he was already ahead of the group, the elephants walk right by it and pay no attention. But if they pick up Bob's pee from the back of the group and drop it in the front, they get to them like, What's Bob's pee doing up here? He's two miles behind us. And so these, they, with that massive brain, they know stuff that they, they know how the group is spread out. They know where everybody is. They know what they're all doing, but they don't have the capacity to cooperate with each other in, in anywhere near the way that we do. They have nothing that sh shows any signs of division of labor. And they had the bad luck that their hands are these big flat feet that they can't manipulate any objects with. They have an extraordinary trunk. It's thousands of muscles in that trunk that allow them to do wild stuff, but they can't work together like we do. So despite having this huge brain, way bigger than ours, of course, it has to run a much bigger body, too, and that uses up a lot of it. 
but their brain doesn't have the capacity that our brain has to connect to other brains. And really, if you think about it, think about all the things that you know in life. Well, what makes, you and I are talking to each other from thousands of miles apart, even though neither of us has the slightest clue how the electronics actually work <laughs> and how that electrical signal is getting there. There's a, probably a million patents that lie between you and me that allow us to so easily have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's because of our extraordinary capacity to work together, to leverage each other's abilities and to sustain them over time via either originally just oral traditions of storytelling and then much, much better writing it all down. And that's what's led us to just take off. And that's why we're sitting, you and I are sitting in comfort, talking to each other from thousands of miles apart. And our cousins who we left behind in the forest are still doing exactly what they were doing when we left. <laughs> I love it. That's a crazy story about the elephants. And it makes me think that there are certain um, evolutionary adaptions which we have, which I suppose are in society today. And, and I'd love to sort of get a background into them. In particular, I'd like to look at, let's say, virtue signaling which is you know which seems you know a very uh you know it seems an insult these days you virtue signaler you know and and then gossiping right because i know i know these are two things which i imagine must have had massive evolutionary advantages even if they're looked down upon yeah look we all virtue signal all the time and we all gossip all the time it's best if you just own up to that like that's just human nature, we do that. There's good and there's bad of it, but it's a, it's a fundamental thing to do. You, you try to control both of them, right? You don't wanna be known as a gossip by doing it more than you should. You don't wanna be coming across as a virtue signaler where you're always trying to show everybody, look, I've got the perfect attitudes. Yeah, I, everybody should like me, yeah. And, but, but the thing is, first of all, to start with gossip, gossip is super important for controlling members of your group. And so, um, in human groups, especially if we go back to hunter-gatherers who are direct return hunter-gatherers who eat today what they kill today, they, um, they, they live in a world where it's very egalitarian. Everything is shared. But that, that system is really ripe for exploitation. So if I'm the strongest one in our group and everybody shares but me and you come and say, hey, Bill, I'd like a piece of your elephant. I just punch you in the face. Well, what can you do about it? I'm stronger than you are. And so you've got a problem on your hands. And this is exactly how chimp societies run. The, the, the one at the top is like, screw you, I take everything I want, and everybody else just has to suffer under that. And as a consequence, they do not work well together. Okay, we awesome. work incredibly well together because we've solved that problem. How have we solved it? Well, if I do that to you, if I, you, you come around to my tent to have not shared with me yesterday and I won't share with you today, I just punch you and kick you out, well, you can't stop me from doing that because I'm huge and strong, which admittedly I'm not, but in that <laughs> world, in this example I am, but what you can do is gossip about me. And now you go, you go to your friend, Bob, and you say, you know, Bill and I went hunting yesterday. At the end of the day, he wouldn't share a thing with me. And when I said, hey, do I get any? He just kicked me out of his tent and, and left me with nothing. And then Bob's like, I'm never hunting with Bill. And you go, me too, mate. It's just you and us. And soon nobody will play with me anymore. And so the power of the many always outweighs the power of the one. No matter how strong you are, no matter how scary you are, you've got to go to sleep at some point in time. And we know from every hunter-gatherer group where we have good data, when people get psychotic or mean or start throwing their weight around, people either, when they go to bed, suddenly they wake up in the morning, they're in, in a camp of one, everybody's just left them, or they never wake up again at all because one big rock to my forehead while I'm sleeping, and it doesn't matter how big and tough I am, that's going to do me in just like it will anybody else. And again, it's our extraordinary ability to communicate that allows us to do that. We can plan and we can do all that, but gossip is the system that makes it work. 
Because let's say that you don't know for sure if this other guy also doesn't like me, or maybe this other guy's my friend. It's super risky to say, boy, I hate Bill's guts because now that guy might tell me and then I really pound on you. So instead you play it really light and easy. You say, oh, you know, Bill and I went hunting today and I didn't end up with very much. And then the guy says, well, you, you're, you know, he, he makes fun of you. And then you think, all right, end of that story. He says, yeah, yeah, Bill did the same thing to me. And now you can both start ratching it up until you're telling long tales about me. You're both feeling better and you just you cut me out. And so we see this all over the world. The gossip has this really important leveling function. It causes, it forces people to cooperate and behave who otherwise wouldn't because they don't want to be the butt of the gossip. They don't want to be left out. They don't want to have their reputation trashed. And in fact, the whole reason that we understand ourselves, that we have this elaborate self-concept, is to manage our reputation in the world because there's nothing more important than what other people think of us. And gossip plays that critical role. So we kind of look down on it, but it's, it's mission critical, particularly in early groups who had no other way other than face-to-face kind of talking about what's going on. Now, the second thing you asked, the, the second oh, please, thing you asked please, about... Please, no, I was trying to remember, you, we talked about gossip. Virtue and signaling, you, virtue signaling. Oh yeah, virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. And so the, here's the thing, the virtue signaling has a very similar quality to it, right? So I want, I want, originally all I really want to know is you and I are in the same coalition. I want to signal to you, yeah, yeah, I'm on your side. And so if you get in a conflict with their side, I'm with you, brother, and we're going to do this together, right? We're forming these coalitional bands. But now I have to make sure that you know I'm a good member of this coalitional band. And maybe I'm a little bit weak. And in the last conflict we have, I didn't get in there and do much. I didn't, my hunting wasn't very good or my beating up on the enemy wasn't very good. And so I can signal to you being a really good member by putting down a member of another group or by having attitudes that I know are central to our group that differentiate us from their group. I can, I can do these sorts of things to let you know I'm on your side. Now we make fun of it when that's all you're doing all the time when I'm my Facebook page keeps changing with the every single day I've got some new cause that I'm celebrating or whatever. We call that virtue signaling. But in fact, all of us do it all the time because we have to make sure that our fellow coalition members know that we're on board, that we're with them, that we've got their back and that sort of thing. Fascinating. And, and I'd, I, there's so many points I could pick up on by you. Um, sure. I think um, oh, I've just got so many thoughts coming up in my mind. So let me think about... Um, just something which you said in which other people's opinions are so important to us. You know, there's such an, ep- an evolutionary adaption there. So is this why say getting rejected or someone not liking my Instagram picture or some of these other narcissistic wounds are so painful? That's exactly right. And so the, if, again, let's just, we don't know exactly how far back it goes, but for sake of argument, let's just say it goes back to Australopithecines and throwing stones and learning to protect themselves. Up until then, when, it, when a threat comes along, all the animals scatter. And if you're if the bad luck, you're closest to the lion or you're the slowest runner, you're, you're animal food. Um, and everybody else made it. But once you start to have a cooperative strategy for dealing with the world, then the single most dangerous thing that could possibly happen to you is to be ejected by your group. Because if you rely on group, group cooperation in order to survive and the group decides they've had it with you, you're not going to survive. And so those members, those ancestors of ours who didn't care what the group thought of them, who didn't mind when people rejected them, well, they don't end up being our ancestors because they end up being lion food because they behave at some point in a way that rejects the group or they wander off without it or whatever. And lo and behold, they're dinner. Mm. Whereas those of us who really care about our group and who really don't want to be tossed out, we signal that to the group regularly we're much more likely to end up in the, goods, in the group's good graces and therefore survive. And importantly, 
if we can internalize when the group starts to dislike us, we can get there first. So if it feels really bad to me when I feel rejected, even though the rejection was soft and you didn't reject me that much, but if it makes me feel really bad, well, I'll do whatever it takes to avoid that happening again. And if I do whatever it takes to avoid it happening again, well, then I'll behave as my group wants me to, and it won't happen again. And therefore, I'm going to survive and prosper. And so we've evolved to be very sensitive to rejection. And in fact, hunter-gatherers follow the same exact pattern that we follow today. Imagine that I'm this psychotic group member that, that won't behave in a way that the other group wants me to. The first thing that they start doing is telling stories about me and making fun of me. And 99% of the time, that brings me into line. I do, it makes me feel bad to be made fun of. But every once in a while, people don't get the hint. And then the next thing they do is they start ostracizing you, pretending you're not even there, talking over you. At that point, almost everybody gets the hint. But there's that rare individual who still is not getting it. Boy, these people don't like me. And that's the one who gets abandoned and the camp just leaves without them and they sure enough end up as lion food. And so we've all, you know, we tell our children when they go to school, someone so made fun of me. Uh, you say, don't worry about it. Words can't hurt you, but they can hurt you. We evolved to be very hurt by words. We evolved to be very sensitive to what our group thinks of us because to be kicked out of our group is a death sentence. And any animal that can't see that death sentence coming is an animal that's going to end up on the receiving end of it. And so all of us have internalized those feelings, become very sensitive to them, and rejection really hurts. So if you put up a post on your Instagram page and it gets no likes, if you tell a joke and nobody laughs, this is bad news. Your, your, your status in the group is not doing very well. You got to find a way to fix that. Mm, so, so fascinating. So, so fascinating. And, and I suppose that explains, you know, so much. This is why I love delving into this stuff. Um, let's look at um, the reproductive side. So I just did a uh, conversation, as I mentioned, with David. Uh, we looked at this. Um, but one of the interesting themes which emerged from the conversation was uh, how um, kindness is sort of universally looked for as, a, as a, you know, in a, in a partner. And I suppose speaking to you today, that becomes, you know, abundantly clear um, as to why. So I wonder what would um, some evolutionary adaptive um, mating traits be? Because I suppose they would be different to longevity traits right you know um no absolutely so the things that make us a good mate uh fortunately as humans it's a long list lots of things can make us a good mate we can be the kindest one we can be the most uh helpful we can be the best hunter we can be the funniest we can be um the uh, best storyteller there's lots of ways that we can bring advantage to our group and so it's very fortunate as a human that we're not in some kind of species where there's really only one way to get a mate. You know, you lock horns, whoever throws the other animal on his bum, he gets the girl and the one who gets thrown on his bum, he skulks off and hopes for another day. And so the beauty is that there's, you can, as a human, you can find common interests in so many different ways. You can be of value to somebody in so many different ways, but in the end, what, what all, almost all humans are looking for is somebody who they think is going to be a good match for them. And so some people are going to be attracted to you because of your brain. Some people are going to be attracted to you because of your brawn. Some people will be attracted to you for your friendliness, right? And in the end, because we're um, pair bonding species, it's not the case that the single best organism of all humans gets all the matings and the rest of us are left out, which it could be in some species. You know, if, if all the 
parenting that a male did was contribute sperm, you know, the women would line up outside Brad Pitt's hotel room and the rest of us would be left out <laughs> because he's a better specimen than I am. So I'm just not, you know, but, but because we pair bond, once Brad is with Angelina, then the rest of us got a shot at all the other girls, right? And so the, it, what we tend to do is we tend to trade off. We have a set of traits that might be the most important to us. And we have a set of traits that we can offer in a partner. And, and we go through life trying to find somebody who's a good match, somebody who, who brings the traits that we care about a lot, who um, conceivably you could imagine spending a very long period of time with. Ancestrally, it, we have something like marriage in, in every hunter-gatherer society we know. They often disintegrate after X amount of time and then typically reform again. Most hunter-gatherer societies seem to be serially monogamous. There's obviously a lot of human beings have a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of variation around that theme. But particularly, again, these direct return ones who eat today what they kill today. And in most societies, we've shifted to something very similar to that as well, whereby it's they're basically monogamous and that it's basically serial monogamy in the sense that once two people decide to go their own way, they, they split apart again. But the it makes perfect sense in a system like ours where it's so hard to raise young. You see the same thing in birds. Uh, you know, once a, a bird isn't a terribly complicated organism, but its baby's raised in a nest that it can't get out of. And so it has to bring food to its baby continuously or the baby will die until it can fly on its own. So this, this period of strong dependency means that most birds are pair bonding because it takes two parents bringing food back to the nest to feed them all. And most humans are pair bonding for the same reason. It's, the term is altricial. It takes a long time for us to be able to get our own nutrients as, an, as a human, to be a self-sufficient organism. Yeah. And so in, because of that, we're much more likely to survive if we have the input from a mother and a father, um, and often a whole lot of other relatives as well. And that shapes our mating system in a big way. So I suppose that would make sense in, as to why males would be the sexual protagonist, because the investment that they're making is so small in comparison, right? If, uh, you know, as you said, if, if all I have to do is just offer a, a sprinkle of sperm and this woman potentially right. has to carry this baby for life, but obviously, you know, raise the baby. And so then that would be a, an asymmetric, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, an asymmetric, an yeah, an asymmetry. Is that right? You know, that's absolutely right. And so um, Robert Trivers is the first who pointed this out. And it, it lines up all the animals on the planet, basically. Whoever puts in more effort into raising the offspring is going to be the choosier one. And mm -hmm. that's almost always the female because she's got a larger sex cell. The egg is bigger than the sperm. And it's almost always the case that she has some additional responsibilities. Not all, Well, it's often the case that beyond producing the bigger sex cell, she also has some maternal role. And often the male doesn't. And so what we see in, in most cases is the male is trying, is competing to attract the female, sometimes offering her gifts, sometimes competing against other males to show he's the strongest, um, sometimes doing a little dance, um, doing something to show, choose me. Now there are exceptions. Uh, for example, seahorses do a lot of the father. He doesn't lay the eggs, but he takes the eggs into his pouch and then puts all the effort into getting them uh, ready to go off into the world, carries them around and such. And so when the female wants to mate with the male, she has to do a dance for him. And he's like, mm, yeah, I'm not impressed, move along. Um, and so whoever's gonna put more effort into it is by definition gonna be choosier because the other, the other sex is trying to take advantage of their investment, not a, an exploitative way, but it's just trying to, I want to, to take advantage of the investment that a female's putting in this huge amount of effort to raise a baby, 
It only takes me a little tiny bit. So I want to show her that I'm going to be there for her, that I'm going to do more than just give her sperm, that I'm going to help with the kid and all that. And that leads to, you know, David Buss has lots of wonderful experiments showing those kinds of things where males, A, are more likely to compete for females, although there's, of course, competition in both directions because we're pair bonding. So, you know, both sides are competing to form that long-term bond. But on average, because females put in a, such a big biological investment, what males are trying to do is show them we'll all put in an effort investment to match that biological one that you are forced to put in as well. So big question. What do females look for in a male? Yeah, that's a great question. There's, <laughs> it won't surprise you to learn there's not a single answer, right? There's not A. It's not all women don't want A. There's lots of variability in, in what women want. Um, just thankfully, right? Because there's lots of variability in men. Otherwise, there'd be one, one, type, one guy who gets them all and the rest of us left out in the cold. But, um, but really what, what women in general are looking for is what we call honest signals of quality. And so what can I do to show my female partner that I'm not just talking, but I've, I've actually achieved these, the things that I'm claiming to have achieved or that I'm actually going to do the things that I'm promising to do. And so the, the biggest concern in general for female is will he invest in me and my offspring or will he abandon us? Because of course, abandonment, particularly in our evolutionary past was very costly kid had a much less chance of surviving. And then secondarily, am I partnering up with somebody who's going to give me good genes so that I'll make a good child? Um, you know, you, you want somebody who will, who will pass on genes and will make the child a success. And then tertiarily or third, I guess I would say, is do their genes complement my own? Because of course, there's, there's um, what you want is often, for example, heterozygosity or different sets of genes around the immune functioning so that you gain additional immune capabilities when you partner up with somebody who has a slightly different immune system from your own and therefore hopefully make your offspring more robust. And there's evidence for these kinds of systems where women look for somebody who's MHC, for example, their major histocompatibility complex is different from their own um, in principle because that should give them a stronger immune system in their child. And so the good news is that that women and men are looking for lots of different things because there's lots of us out there. But really what they boil down to is what I would call honest signals of quality. And so, for example, I know it seems silly, but like risk-taking, doing, taking silly physical risks is an honest signal of quality. Because if I try to do some big 30-foot ski jump, for example, and if I, if I make it, well, that shows I'm pretty fit. I'm pretty athletic. Yeah. If I splatter into the cliff and don't make it, but I pop right back up and say, oops, let me try again. I'm a pretty robust organism, right? That's mm -hmm. still pretty good genes. And if I splatter into the cliff and I don't make it, well, that was pretty informative too. And so there's some seemingly silly behaviors that men will often engage in, young male risk-taking being the prime example, that actually makes perfect sense. Because even if women in principle, would say, well, I don't like risk-taking, I don't like that kind of stuff. They still, that, that risk-taking is giving them information, it's showing them an honest signal of what the person, of the person's genetic robustness, skill, et cetera. And, and men and women are very attuned to honest signals. Yeah, and I, I guess that's why, you know, over here I see women post on Facebook, rugby players or rugby boys with heart yeah. eyes. You know, I don't see any girls going, oh, chess players, <laughs> yeah, you know. No, exactly. Yeah. And so the thing is that fortunately, there's also girls who really like chess players because, of course, a big brain is a really good honest signal as well. But they're, they're different types of people, right? And so 
the kindness matters to everybody. There's not a culture on the planet where people don't put kindness pretty near the top of their list. Because if you're going to spend your life partnering with somebody, you want them to look out for you. And then some people are more focused on brain, like chess players. Some people are more focused on brawn, like rugby players. And some people are focused on music. I mean, you know, look at, at Mick Jagger or, um, you know, you choose your rock star. By and large, these are, these are people who they lots and lots of people are interested in them, despite the fact that arguably they don't have any skills that would be any good that would do them any, and you know, they can't, they can't build things. They can't write things. They can't do the kinds of things you're looking for, but they can create artistically. And that's super attractive because again, the ability to create something interesting and new is an honest signal of quality. Hmm. And, and I suppose in terms of an honest signal of quality, something, you know, something which can't be faked, uh, something that would come to my mind would be, let's say that I have um, a lot of muscle mass. I'm not saying that I do, but let's say that I have a lot of muscle mass. That shows that I must be conscientious. I must be diligent. I must be able to provide the calories, which evolutionary, I mean, I imagine that would have been a huge thing. Um, that would, would be that... interesting. And it either, shows, it either shows all that or possibly it shows that you're such a robust organism that you can somehow have a lot of muscle mass, even though all you do is sit on your butt and watch TV all day. And if that's what you are, well, that's still going to give pretty good genes to my kid who's going to have a lot of muscle mass too, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would love to talk about that because uh, this was just something which popped into my mind. I suppose if you look at something like dogs, smaller dogs, uh, they live longer, right? I, I would I would say that that's you know, I would say I'm pretty accurate in saying that, you know, a Great Dane lives to, you know, nine or 10, um, right. you know, something like a Bichon Freeze could live 15, 16 years. Um, what, is that applicable as well in humans? Yes and no. So part of the reason that dogs live longer if they're smaller is that dogs are evolved from wolves. And so to breed them to be really huge, you have to sacrifice everything else. If what you want is a Great Dane, then every time, and you're, that's what you're trying to breed, then every time some, one of your dogs had a larger puppy, that's the one that you breed. Kind of doesn't matter what else might be wrong with it. And so when you, when you have really strong selective pressure on one trait, it's going to cost you in other traits. And so really big dogs, A, don't live as long, B, often have various other problems that they've got along the way. But interestingly, very small dogs are the exact same way. If you're trying to get that thing down to a toy poodle or toy whatever, they also often have lots of problems and may not live as long and are susceptible to lots of things because you're pushing so hard on one feature. Whenever evolution does that or, or the human breeder who's playing the role of evolution, then you're potentially creating problems because you can, you can get what you want. You can make the animal bigger or fiercer or smarter or whatever, but you're gonna, if, if all you're selecting on is one trait, the other traits you're going to build up a lot of what we would call deleterious traits, things that could cause animal problem. Now, in humans, of course, the pressure on us is from the outside. There's nobody, to my knowledge, breeding us and making decisions for us. And so um, what, what you see with humans is that those traits that our ancestors had that made them successful are going to be those traits that are attractive to the opposite sex. And so... Um, you know, David would have talked a fair bit about the kind of traits that we look for, that men look for in women and that women look for in men. And then there's universals. We all want people who are smart. And and smart is great because the you know there's so much genetic expression in the brain that it's a pretty good sign that they've got good genes. And it's also a pretty good sign that if you pair it with somebody who's smart and things go wrong, they're gonna figure out a way out, right? So they're gonna be good for you, but that's and the same holds for generous and the same holds for 
strong, all of those traits are going to benefit you as an individual, and they're also going to provide a benefit to your offspring. I love it. I love it. My last question on this topic would be, sure. what would be one, perhaps one takeaway you would love everybody to take away from your fantastic book, The Social Leap? Well, I guess the biggest takeaway for me is the fundamental importance of sociality in human nature. And so we are very social creatures. We're very gregarious. We like to be around other people. But I actually think that that sociality is, is tied in tightly to our genetic heritage because it was the sociality that got us on the path that we are on now. It was once probably Australopithecines, although we can't be sure, but it was once we started to work together, probably to throw stones to protect yourself, that created that pressure to cooperate. And once we, got, we had that pressure to cooperate, we became social, then the group goals and the individual goals aligned for the first time in our ancestry. You know, chimps are super smart, but they don't run the show. They're just sitting in the woods where we left them. Why is that? Because the individual chimps goals are often at odds with the group's goals for what's best. But once we started cooperating with each other, then our individual goals aligned perfectly with our group goals and suddenly everything took off. And uh, I always ask this, what books have impacted your life? Oh, there's so many great books. Um, I love um, uh, Hierarchy in the Forest and Moral Origins um, by, by Bohm. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name. I love um, Pinker's books. I love Sapolsky's books. You know, Sapolsky's Got Behave is his new one, but Primate's Memoir was an old book that's tons of fun. Pinker's book, Starting at the Blank Slate, and then Better... Um, Better Angels of Our Nature, you know, um, Thomas Sudendorf's book, which I already mentioned to you, The Gap, is this wonderful discussion of how we differ from all other animals. David Buss has a number of excellent books, Evolution Desire, et cetera. There's, I mean, there's, there's this wonderfully near infinite supply of really great books. And, and the lovely thing about them is that almost all of them do a great job of taking this huge literature, which is often really boring to read because it's full of statistics and jargon, and they break it down into some really fun stories and they tie it all together. Michael Tomasello, again, another super example of a, a series of wonderful books and, and wonderful basic research findings as well. And so for me, I, I just read as much of those as I possibly can. I mean, I really love fiction. I love to sit down and read fiction, but I've told myself, you just don't have time to do that till you retire. And all I do now is I read these scientific books in anthropology, psychology, economics, um, political science, biology, because there's so much wonderful stuff out there and there's great storytelling there too, but it's also stuff that, that helps me understand what I need to know to do my job. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Where can our audience connect with you? So I'm, I'm not great on social media. Anybody who's is, they're all welcome to uh, find me on Facebook and I don't, I, I have a Twitter account, but I'm one of these terrible people who just lurks and benefits from all their friends. <laughs> um, and so I almost never tweet anything. Uh, but I, of course, I, my um, academic papers all go up on, um, uh, on the web and they're accessible. And then I've, I, I've got various podcast conversations that are scattered about the web. Um, the easy thing is that my surname, Von Hippel, is sufficiently unusual that there's really just one Bill Von Hippel out there. And so I'm easily found. And, um, and people are more than welcome to get in touch with me. Um, the book is the, the Social Leap, which we've been talking about, is accessible and starting to become in more languages, but easily any English-speaking country, you can still get it um, either audible or um, in a hard copy, whatever people's preferences are, or an e-copy, and it's starting to be in various other languages as well. 
Amazing. And I really recommend our audience to check out this socially. It's such a fascinating insight. It's actually going to go on our website as one of our recommended books. So great. I, Excellent. Yeah. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. Bill, this was such a pleasure speaking to you. I had, I learned so much. I, you know, I was, <laughs> that, that's the thing about the elephants of man. It was, it was incredible. <laughs> I really enjoyed the conversation. Same. It's been really a pleasure chatting with you and um, by all means, um, I hope anybody who's interested feels free to get in touch if they have questions or want to pursue any of these ideas. Well, that wraps up what was an awesome episode with Bill. I really do believe that knowing these evolutionary biases which we may have developed with are incredibly useful to know. So guys, thank you for tuning in. And if you haven't already, smash that subscribe button and we will see you again on Monday.